podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Danes were dominant in their last 16 demolition over the Welsh in Amsterdam to ensure that a repeat of the previous tournament wouldn't happen for Gareth Bale and Co. Italy needed extra time to take care of Austria and progress to meet the winner of Portugal and Belgium on Friday night in Munich. In the process, Federico and Enrico Chiesa became the first father and son combination to score in a European Championships in England. I am Jake from What If Football. This is the Euro Daily Podcast episode 21 and the knockout stages are finally back and we will be covering the knockout stages in its entirety up until the final on June the 11th. You can find the podcast on Acast, Amazon, Apple and Spotify, all good podcast platform providers. And if you are on one of those, please give us a lovely five-star review, like, subscribe, etc, etc. And we will be bringing you three days a week content after the championships. Likewise on Patreon, where we are at patreon.com forward slash whatifootball and after the Euros, for just a small £3 monthly donation, we'll be providing seven days a week content, 50 weeks a year. But for now... Let's get stuck in to the first last 16 matches. So we go to Amsterdam where Denmark met Wales in the very first knockout stage game of this year as we had Schrigger Larsen in at right wing back for Denmark. Meanwhile, Kasper Dahlberg came in for the injured Yusuf Poulsen. Wales were back to their fully strength 11 after Rob Page rested the three players on bookings. Now let's start the game... Wales had a very composed start. Denmark lined up in that 3-4-3 as they have done for the past couple of games and Gareth Bale was causing problems out wide with delivery and with his long shots early on. He got into some quite decent spaces in the penalty area of the Denmark box and it looked as though Wales were going to push right through his Denmark team fairly early on. And then the tactical change happened a few minutes in. Andreas Christensen came out to defensive mid. It made it more of a 4-3-3. And that allowed Thomas Delaney on the left to sort of track Gareth Bale also. When uh, Delaney was otherwise occupied, Christensen would come in there and uh, occupy Bale as well. So it it was that tactical shift that kind of seamlessly happened sort of a quarter of the way through the first half. And for me, it's a tactical shift that won the game because after that moment, Wales had very little joy for the rest of the game. But even though... That change happened. Denmark's biggest threat at that point really were from uh, from corners and set pieces in the first knockings of the game. Joe Allen, I thought, was still being fairly influential in the uh, in the midfield. I thought he was very uh, very press resistant and looking to go forward and mount Welsh attacks. But Wales never really um, they never really had it in the first after the first barrage of sort of half chances. Gareth Bale fizzed in across that nobody could unfortunately meet. And that was probably the closest Wales got, to be fair, whilst they were still in the game anyway. But it was quality that won the game for Denmark, that poked them ahead. Mikkel Damsgaard, the uh, player who came in for Christian Eriksen after the first couple of games, and he's been an absolute revelation. The 20, 2021-year-old, 20, is he, uh, from Sampdoria? He's been absolutely fantastic. He was getting into those little spaces in behind the midfield, the midfield pivot of uh, Joe Allen and Joe Morell. And he was um, fantastic in that uh, little tricky spot where the defenders of Wales didn't really know to pick him up or not and uh, he fed Kasper Dahlberg the chance at goal and he struck it from distance absolutely superb goal 
a VAR call whether uh, Martin Braffert was in the eyeline of the uh, goalkeeper, but fortunately for Denmark, he was on side and Denmark were at the races and Kasper Dahlberg just came to the fore here. That was a superb finish. It was nice and artistic, curled into the bottom corner. No way Danny Ward could uh, save that. Danny Ward, one of the uh, best performing goalkeepers, arguably the best performing goalkeeper at this championship so far. Didn't have his best game, obviously, shipping four goals. You're not going to have your best game as a goalkeeper. But slightly a rung below his uh, performances from the group stages. Damsgaard kept providing Kasper Dahlberg with chances. The first half war ran and for me, Denmark would just look to cut above. As soon as that goal went in, they just looked a million miles better than Wales. I was still holding that hope for the Welsh though. You know, the quote-unquote team spirit that they have. Um, it's more like a club team. That uh, team spirit that they tried to cultivate in the camp for these championships. Thomas Delaney was allowed to be as offensive as he had been in all tournament, really pushing up out of that midfield three, and that is because of Christensen being in defensive mid and allowing them that uh, licence to go forward. And I thought he had a fantastic game on the left of that three. And uh, alongside uh, Joachim Mahler, of course, great as per usual. I think he's been Denmark's best player all tournament, really. And again, pushing up and uh, being a really offensive left wing back here. And even when Denmark shifted to a four, he was... He was getting high and wide, like a bit like uh, Leonardo Spinazzola for Italy, as he has done all tournament as well. And I, I think those two are the, probably the prevailing fullbacks, at least on the left um, throughout this tournament. Kasper Dahlberg was better, a lot better this time. I, I didn't, I wasn't too impressed with him the first uh, game that he came on. I think it was the um, the final group game, but he was he was a lot better, of course, and he would add to his tally in the second half. Now, as I say, I always felt in the second half that Wales would have a bit more, a bit more uh, second wind almost. I've always felt that they'd get it back. I thought they'd create chances and at least try to uh, impose themselves on the game. But um, defensively, I don't think they were all there whatsoever. The d- defensive two of Chris Meppham and Joe Rodon, they uh, could bat away crosses and stuff, but they didn't have any answer to the likes of Damsgaard drifting into the... Uh, little gaps in between the defence and midfield. And I think that's where perhaps the defensive three would have suited Wales a lot more. So if you took Ben Davis into the left centre-back role and Nico Williams at left wing-back, at least one of those mid- the defensive three could come out and meet Damsgaard instead of the two, two centrally defenders that you can't really aggressively push out because there's only one cover at the, at the minimum, really. You can't really aggressively go out and push a number 10 who's sort of dictating the pace in between the midfield and the defence when there's three and you still have that Morel and Ramsey midfield two even in a three or a four there's a there's just that one extra defender that, that one extra body in that central area for Wales which I think would be uh, would have killed a lot of the joy that Damsgaard was having in that uh, little pocket of space that he kept propping up himself finding time and time again and Denmark really controlled the midfield in this game. Delaney was, as I say, he was pushing quite high. You had uh, Hoiberg, he was pretty much dictating the pace. He's, uh, I think he leads the assist rankings in the championships with three at the moment, which he's, he's probably made more assists in this tournament than he has for Tottenham in the past season. Not to say he's had a bad season for Tottenham, but he's just not that kind of player. So Wales, the... I always thought they'd come back through uh, their team spirit, but Denmark, they were coming up against the team in team spirit through adversity, really. The second goal, it was kind of gifted to him, really. Nico Williams, he he made the bad decision. He was, I always thought that he should have just 
cleared it the way the ball was good and just help it along for a corner or a throw in or whatever. But instead, he preferred to uh, put it back into the danger zone, gifted it straight to Casper uh, Dahlberg. Couldn't have found a worse player if he tried. Casper Dahlberg on the edge of the six-yard box just tucks it past Danny Ward. And from then on, it was game over, wasn't it, unfortunately for Wales? And um, there were suspicions of a foul on Kiefer Moore off Simon Kerr, which probably was founded, really. But regardless of that, enough play went on. Obviously, if you're Welsh, you're going to feel aggrieved at that decision. But again, not that podcast to talk about refereeing decisions. But for me, uh, they've got to defend that. There was about 20 seconds that go by in the game without Wales getting a foot on it. And the only foot they get on it was, uh, of course, Nico Williams' clearance. The haphazard clearance straight to Kasper Dahlberg. A couple of yards out. And of course, he's going to finish that off when he's in such confidence. And of course, in his old stomping ground, formerly of Ajax, now of Nice, of course. And I think that buoyed him a little bit in this uh, in this match. It was the sort of things that were creeping into Welsh game, not sturdy enough defensively. The mistake from Nico Williams, a very uncharacteristic of Wales. And the second half, they were, they were gaining more territory, of course, as Denmark would seed it because they were 2-0 up. They didn't really need to go out and uh, go out and find a third goal or fourth goal, but of course they would. Um, Wales were just missing that killer pass. And as more as the game wore on, Bale was floating around to find any sort of space, any sort of joy that he could getting a bit des- desperate, you might uh, might say. And it was just, as soon as Kiefer Moore came off, I thought the, uh, that that was an admittance that they, they weren't going to get into the game anymore. And Jakim Myler was in absolutely acres of space for a third. Martin Brathwaite beat the VAR decision to get a fourth. There's obviously that little gift going around of Gareth Bale. And it was kind of needless to uh, drag out the VAR decision to the nth degree for, for uh, settling whether the, w- the win was 3-0 or 4-0. But... There we are. I think there was a, a lot of composure lacking in Welsh games, which, seen from Denmark's third and fourth goal, Denmark clearly have in abundance now. So I ask, how far will how far will Denmark get? This is a very different Denmark from the group stages, I believe, because right up until that 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 game against Russia, the four-one, they were running on emotion. I believe, especially in that first half against um, against Belgium, that was unbelievable. How how much of a adrenaline boost they got. Obviously, they would tire and Kevin De Bruyne would pick them off. And then, obviously, going and needing a two-goal win against Russia to qualify, they would, of course, get second place, which is why they're in this contest. And that, for me, that was emotion as well. The obviously backing of the home crowd. This was almost a home crowd in Amsterdam, really. There's a lot more Danes than they were Welsh, perhaps due to the restrictions and perhaps proximity as well to Denmark. Obviously, it's next door. But Denmark, for me now, this wasn't a emotional display. This wasn't like Yusuf Poulsen celebrating almost in tears, Christiansen the same. This was cold and calculated and just all round far superior. And now for me, I'm <laughs> sticking my neck out a little bit. And this is obviously uh, on the predication that Netherlands beat Czech Republic tonight. I have full confidence Denmark can beat the Netherlands. A lot of people I've been listening to and reading, talking up the Dutch as we go on and go on and I'd like to remind them that they've played Ukraine who showed themselves up against Austria in the final group game they're not all there at cracked up to be really but although Ukraine do have a good chance of getting the quarterfinals against Sweden but I don't think they will North Macedonia statistically between them and Turkey for one of the worst teams at the tournament and uh, Austria who defensively were okay they weren't in the uh, they were shocking in the um in the group game where they lost 2-0 to in the Amsterdam, in the Amsterdam Arena. 
and they've obviously had to change tactic off the back of that. So they admitted that their performance against the Netherlands was not up to scratch. Uh, so I don't think the Netherlands are by any means. I think the the least tested team in the tournament. Um, three wins from three, yeah, that's that's a fantastic record, and they've scored the most goals. They've got statistically got the best attack, but they've not really faced anybody. Uh, but we'll talk more about them later. So I've got a full confidence that Denmark can beat the Netherlands. They're a lot more organised. They still have the quality. They will need Thomas Delaney fit, I believe, because he came off hobbling a little bit. Um, but I do think uh, they've got enough to beat them. And, of course, we've seen here in the Wales game that changed the game completely. They've got that tactical shift that they can just seamlessly swap into Christensen, making it a three midfield. And I thought they were just superior. They will be superior against the Netherlands, I believe. That will be in Baku. Now, it is a kind quarter of the draw, as I said, but there's a lot of travelling involved there. Denmark, though, are the least travelled last 16 team. Their last, yeah, because aside from England, of course, who play all their four games at, at uh, Wembley, Denmark have played all three games, group games at Copenhagen, and then move next door to Amsterdam. So it's fairly uh, positive for Denmark in that respect. So they should be fresher, at least in terms of uh, air miles, that... Uh, they will be fresher than, say, Netherlands in the uh, in the quarterfinals there. And then if uh, then if Denmark beat the Netherlands, then it's likely quotation marks likely to be England or Germany. And there's nothing to say that they should be scared of Germany. England might be difficult to break down, but of course we all know that Denmark have a win over England in the last twelve months. Let's not forget at Wembley. Obviously, completely different fair now, uh, a potential European Championship semi-final compared to a Nations League group game. But they still have that record, and Denmark have lost only one of their last 28 games against teams not named Belgium. So they are on the run of Italian proportions. Of course, we'll talk about Italy later on in their last 16 game. In terms of XG, Denmark have the third best defence and the third best attack. So the numbers don't lie. The numbers, obviously, the third best attack that is against Netherlands and Spain, who I don't think were tested as uh, Denmark were. Denmark tested off the pitch and mentally, of course. Netherlands had one of the easiest groups. Spain, likewise, and made a hash of that, didn't they? Let's be honest. And uh, third best defence behind England and Italy. Could say that neither of them have been tested either. Denmark have probably played the best team in Belgium as opposed to England, who've probably faced their best team in Croatia, Italy, and probably Switzerland, Wales. So Denmark are right up there and they should not be discounted. And I do think they probably will beat the Netherlands. If it is the Netherlands, of course, they probably will beat the Czech Republic if that is the case as well. But flipping the coin, what is next for Wales? Gareth Bale stormed off post-match after being asked if it was his last match for Wales. Um, you'd like to think that he'd give it a go in terms of the World Cup because it will be their first World Cup since 1958 if they can qualify. They've got a much younger squad than uh, 2016. They can push on. It's only a year and a bit away. They will probably retain the same sort of names. The only turmoil really will be who the manager will be, obviously. Don't know the outcome of the Ryan Giggs uh, court case yet. Rob Page might have done enough to uh, just keep the job on a permanent basis. And you've got Dan James, you've got David Brooks, you've got Harry Wilson, Joe Rodon, all young players, Chris Meppham at the back as well, Nico Williams, if... Uh, he will uh, step up for the next tournament. They're all a fairly young play team and it is a sort of a team in transition, this one. So to get to the last 16, no mean feat for Wales in quite what was quite kind of like a, an equal group for the teams placed second to fourth in Group A, at least on paper. <laughs> anyway, Wales have already beaten 
Czech Republican World Cup qualification. Plus, they've got the easiest on paper games going into September internationals. That is Belarus and Estonia. So they can really hammer home that advantage. They've also got Denmark in that uh, qualification group, but they look... uh, uh, Belgium, sorry, in that qualification group, but they look um, above and beyond, really, um, fighting them for a playoff place. And it will be a playoff place. Wales have confirmed a playoff place with their uh, Nations League performance. So got more than enough. All the omens, all the ducks are lined up in a row for them to qualify for the World Cup next year. And it will be, uh, I think it will be, there's rumours that Gareth Bale won't, will have played his last international game, but that would be the perfect send-off to drag Wales back to a World Cup for the only the second time. And of course, we all know that Wales after this as well, they've got a 100% record of getting out of the groups. Obviously, it will be a lot harder at the World Cup, but we'll cross that bridge when it come, when we come to it. After this short break, we've got a 2021 trivial tease and of course, rounding off the uh, last 16 action from Italy and Austria and previewing today's games. Welcome back. This is a 2021 trivial teaser and I did probably make it far too easy, but I wanted a Polish player in there and <laughs> Mikhail Helik was, of course, the answer. Sent half. Well done to George, Dean, Chris, Jake and any of us that I uh, may have missed out on that one, but uh, fairly simple, really. Got a bit harder one, I think. I think I've made it a bit harder. But today I am a forward. I've been managed by Petr Bosch. I've been managed by Lucien Favre. Some of my teammates have been Jude Bellingham. Mario Goetze, Andre Schoeller, Emil Smith-Rowe and Luke Shaw. I'm a forward, I've been managed by Petter Bosch, Lucien Favre and I've played alongside Jude Bellingham, Mario Goetze, Andre Schoeller, Emil Smith-Rowe and Luke Shaw. Find out the answer on tomorrow's show and of course tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube if you think you know the answer, if you think you can beat me like so many of us have done in the uh, 2021 trivial teaser over the course of the championships this summer. After this short break, we'll be back with Austria versus Italy at Wembley. And of course, previewing the big games from the last 16 today, Belgium versus Portugal and the Dutch versus the Czechs. Welcome back. Now we go to Wembley. Italy were at full strength for the last 16 game. Their last, their first knockout stage game since a loss to Germany five years ago in the quarterfinals of the Euros that year. They're at full strength, probably by Giorgio Keely and his continued absence through injury. I don't know if he's going to make it for the rest of the tournament. Unfortunately, Acherby acquitted himself quite well, though, in the centre-back position. Meanwhile, Austria were unchanged. They were playing fairly, fairly high in the uh, first knockings of the game. Obviously, that comes from uh, the manager, Franco Ford, and the fact that most of Franco Ford's players play in the Bundesliga. Something he's got a bit of stick for by the uh, local media in Austria. I thought that Italy were starting off slow. It had more than a whiff of the uh, opening game of the con- of the uh, tournament, Italy versus Turkey. Of course, this is new ground for a lot of these Italian players. Perhaps only Verratti and Bonucci aside. I can't think of any more. Perhaps Immobile as well. You know, playing a knockout stage game of international football. Of course, the uh, Turkey game as well was similar because a lot of players, a lot of those players, hadn't played in a. Uh, international tournament before so you can see why it was kind of tepid from Italy early doors here as well Nicolo Borello I thought he was probing a little bit although Italy were kind of slightly off when the um, he's probing with his passes and he had a couple of shots from long range as he does like to do there were gaps in behind uh, Stefan Leiner right back and David Alaba left back to be uh, got at which I think is why uh, Italy sort of sat slightly off kind of looking for the break obviously the wingers are a big uh, plus point for Italy. You've got Spinazzola as well, pushing on from fullback 
to uh, team with uh, Insignia who drifts in. You've got Barella and Berardi as well combining on the right-hand side. So there were gaps. Spinazzola was looking to exploit it as per any uh, his long bursting runs. They sort of waned off as a match wore on, obviously, into 120 minutes plus. They were um, they were fast as ever in the first half, but he just couldn't find that little uh, pass or shot. He had a shot that sort of faded wide, didn't he? Uh, that was kind of skewed, but uh, that was probably amongst the closest chances that Italy really came. They don't, they're not a team that creates a lot of chances. They, they have a lot of the ball, they have a lot of territory, but they don't create too many. By the way, of great chances, really. Barella had a shot safe from distance, but that's about it, really. There was potential for Austria on the break. I didn't think Christoph Baumgartner had the best game, to be fair. Did he come off injured? I was definitely pulling up on cramp. Meanwhile, you got Conrad Leimer, who's fantastic going forward. Marcel Sabitzer, of course, he was a potential from the break. It was more like a 4-4-1-1 or maybe a 4-4-2 with Sabitzer. Sabitzer naturally drifts off anyway into the gap between the midfield and defence anyway. But these sort of occurrences breaking from the midfield. I thought Schlager had a good game as well, as tireless as ever in the midfield. But those these opportunities for Austria were quite rare in the uh, grand scheme of things. And when they did get those chances, I thought they were a bit sloppy in possession, a bit sloppy in terms of you know carving out chances. And even in the back of my mind, you, you kind of feel that Italy had an extra gear or two to uh, move up, like the Turkey game. And they were controlling, and I, in my notes, I put they will break that high line soon, um... Jero Mobley had a long shot, probably the closest they came, easily the closest they came. Cannon back off the uh, angle between post and bar. And they were working their way through it, and then the first half whistle, the, the uh, halftime whistle came, and the game sort of changed. The, as the uh, second half started, Austria were the ones now sniffing out chances. David Alaba achingly close from a free kick early in the second half. Um, Danny Murphy says that he could have just blasted it, but... I think Danny Murphy seems to forget that he's scored a couple of free kicks that were that close and he dipped them up and down as well. So I mean, I don't know where that came from anyway. Let's not lambast the commentary. It was very, very close, put it that way. Um, and he, I think he could have easily got that up and down in terms of uh, how high it was above the wall and how close it was to the crossbar. They just couldn't... It was In the second half, Italy were more, more at war on the more sloppy they were in possession. And again, Austria could not capitalise. Conrad Leimer grew into the game. I felt he was good at carrying the ball out of the midfield. And he is recovering from this um, injury. And he's looked a lot sharper as he's gone on in the Euros. The first couple of games, he's quite sloppy. He's kind of flagging a little bit in the end of the games. Here, though, I thought he was one of, perhaps one of Austria's best players. Sabitzer was always a danger from distance. He carved out a couple of opportunities, but... Uh, non-truly tested Donnarumma in the uh, Italian net and I don't think um, in terms of uh, terms of teams I don't think Austria are probably the biggest test that Italy have faced I think that's probably probably Switzerland or Wales and Wales of course was a much changed team so Austria probably not even the they just couldn't capitalize on him they just they would they, Austria just sat extremely uh deep when they needed so there was a high line in the first half they sat deeper in the second half as the match wore on and defensively they were just heroic Martin Hinteregger was superb in the uh, defence Dragovic wasn't too bad either uh, but in terms of Italy I'd be a hypocrite if I said that this performance dents their hopes they grinded out a win in the end of course because I have said that England have a good chance at winning it and defensively Italy is still there they might have conceded but they're still there and um even in spite of Marco Nautovic thinking he'd breached the Italians' defence for the very first time in 11 games with that header, it was very, very close, obviously. That would have been 25 minutes to go. 
that would have been Austria 1-0 up against Italy and would Italy have got back into the game? Of course, that is a, that is a what-if video for another day, really. Um, Italy, as the second half wore on, they grew a little bit toothless up front, but then Mancini brought on his subs, didn't he? He brought on Matteo Pessina, brought on Manuel Locatelli, and Locatelli really is the... Uh, and Pessina, really, the two midfielders that break. They're more like tens at times. Locatelli can play anywhere, really, in all positions, six, eight or ten, really, in the midfield. But I think he's better, a lot better going forward, Pessina is as well. They both play for high-energy, high-pressing clubs in um, in Sassuolo and Atalanta. So they are used to that. And I think those were the two changes that, completely flipped the game for me Pacino injected a little bit of pace a fantastic turn didn't he that sort of like almost like a Maradona turn with his first action beats three men in with one spin it was just superb to see he injected a little bit of pace meanwhile behind him you've got Jorginho trying to pick a few locks for Immobile with those little lofted balls but couldn't really Immobile was fairly vacant didn't have too many chances I did have a thought that he was more playing more like um he used to do for Italy as opposed to his Lazio form and his early European Championship form that we've seen him bank a couple of goals in for uh, for Italy. In terms of Lorenzo Insigne as well, I thought it was one of his more infuriating performances. Couldn't stay on side, two one-footed. There were two opportunities he had where he could have just let it run across his body, hit his left foot, but on both occasions, cuts back, and he has to cut back so far that Austria's defence gets in the way and the chance is just pointless he has that one where he clips it over the bar where a left foot could have been found at the near post you've got one where um puts it wide as well i just think just hit hit the ball with your left foot and train your left foot if you if you play on the left wing obviously it's his dominant foot his right foot and that's his trademark to cut in and shoot but surely have an insurance policy where you can hit it with your left foot and be fairly confident it's going to hit it on target but they just, he just infuriates me sometimes as uh, Insigne, but he's obviously a fantastic footballer. Italy weren't really creating enough chances. Uh, in terms of the quarterfinal, I think Manuel Locatelli might need to come in, but the, again, the uh, the dilemma, as I said, after the uh, third game, or after the second game, rather, who comes out? You've got Giorgino, who we know Mancini loves, and he dictates the play. Verratti is their star man in central midfield. So that only leaves... Nicolo Barella, um, which I'm unsure about him coming out. He's probably the man that has to come out. He provides width, doesn't he, on the right with um, Di Lorenzo or Florenzi. They, on the, in the right-back role, they're stuck into a defensive three, so they need the uh, half-winger, the Mazzala, to tuck in to provide width out wide with uh, Berardi coming out wide. But they could be... Also, there's going to be clamour for Federico Chiesa to start the quarter-final, so perhaps... Locatelli and Chiesa on that sort of right channel. Locatelli can stay central whilst Chiesa hugs the touchline, does those trademark runs that he loves to do. And I think Chiesa, obviously, he gets the goal, breaks the deadlock with the uh, spot of composure, the little chop and finish. And yeah, that's what, exactly what Italy needed. There will be that clamour for him to start. Obviously, the game's getting bigger and bigger. Chiesa has big, big game experience that Berardi might not have. Obviously, Berardi plays at Sassuolo, Chiesa at Juventus, so... Could that be a factor, but or will Mancini stick with his trusted eleven? For me, I would probably with leaving Barella out, you sacrifice a little bit of width. And obviously Barad is more of an inverted winger, so bringing Chiesa out will maintain that width. And there could be two changes that he makes, but obviously 
we uh, can't delve into Mancini's mind to pluck that out, can we? But that'd be the way I'd go, to be fair. And the game was killed, or we thought it was killed before the half-time extra break. Andrea Bellotti, another sub, held up the ball very well, something that Immobile couldn't really do. As I say, Austria were dropping deeper and deeper, but the uh, more than made up for that with their defensive heroics. And he gives it to Matteo Pessina, of course, another sub, and he scores. And then it's the subs combining for the two goals, really. Insignia had a hand in the first goal as well. That's uh, not discounting for that one. So it was the changes in the end and the strength in depth that had Italy over the line. So let's not discount Italy just based off this one performance, getting dragged to extra time by a lesser team. No offence, Austria, but of course they are a lesser team. Um, Portugal were taken to the brink in 2016, numerous occasions. Germany taken to extra time by Algeria in 2014. So I don't think they should take the gloss off Italy and the expectations, the excitement that we have for them. Even despite Sasha, Sasha Kalajic's header from a corner, which is, I thought was a very deft header, and it was, uh, I'd like to see Kalajic get on the score sheet because he's been one of my ones to watch for Austria. Didn't get the game time, of course, after Arnautovic announced himself in the first game. And perhaps, um, perhaps the lack of goals in this game, or perhaps Italy's, uh, we were all expecting Italy to thrash Austria, weren't we? But perhaps it's Wembley's fault. Because obviously, notoriously, England have been 1-0 in their way to the last 16. There's only been two goals in the three group games at Wembley. Obviously, three more added today, but that was after 90 minutes. Can you count them? Who knows? Let's say So let's say Wembley have two goals in four games. So let's count compare them to every ground's goals per game ratio. You've got Amsterdam with 14 goals in four games. Netherlands, of course, high scoring in the groups. Munich with 11 goals in three. Copenhagen and Budapest with nine goals in three. Baku, Bucharest and Glasgow with eight goals in three games. Seville and Rome with seven goals in three games. And St. Petersburg with 15 goals in six games. So maybe it's Wembley's fault. Maybe the pitch is off as it has been in in the past with certain teams. And maybe it's just the length of the pitch, the width of the pitch. Maybe it's it's not conducive to these overtired, overworked footballers that we see. And... Uh, Perhaps it's Wembley's fault. Perhaps we're going to have some really drab semi-finals and finals when uh, the tournament returns to Wembley, of course. England versus Germany is at Wembley as well. Maybe that will be a, a low-scoring nil-nil and penalty shootout type of game. I know German fans probably will be praying for that this stage. And uh, maybe it's Wembley's fault. But no, I think in all seriousness, we may have overestimated Italy, maybe. In this unbeaten run, they've only really faced of note the Netherlands and they've, at this championships, they've won games at home. Let's get real about it. They've beaten Turkey, Switzerland and Wales at home. And um, But on the other side of the coin, they do have the best defence. Defence wins international titles. They've only conceded one. One goal in what is essentially four and a half games of football here. And for me, they're still in it. The real acid test will be the quarterfinal, which we know is going to be a top, top team. Portugal or Belgium, which will play later on today. Portugal will play similar to Austria, probably even sit a little deeper than Austria and will be hard to break down. I think that's the team that Italy don't want to face. If you're an Italian, I'd, I'd you'd want Belgium. They might be the better team than Portugal, but Belgium will come out and play. And I think that might benefit Italy really, especially out wide with the wing-backs. And what is an age in defence? Belgium might have to play both Beata and and Denier for the uh, pace that they have, as opposed to Alderweireld, who's creaky. Vertonghen, who's especially creaking, might be carrying an injury. So for me, if I'm Italy, I want to play Belgium in the last 16. But let us preview Belgium versus Portugal. Probably the tie, around with the, tie of the round with the most quality on show, really. And it's a 
Bit of a shame that both can't inhabit the quarterfinals, really. Of course, this is a game where Ronaldo can, of course, break the all-time men's international scoring record of 109. And if only that goal against Serbia was, was allowed, he might have already broken it. Romelu Lukaku can, of course, make a dent on Ronaldo's golden boot dreams. He's on three, Ronaldo's on five. For me, Portugal's best chance is to keep Bruno Fernandes off on, the, on the bench, keep that dynamism in the 4-3-3. With Renato Sanchez as the... Uh, as the box-to-box midfield, I think he adds a lot more than Bruno in this system. and I, d- I think it makes very little sense for Bruno to be a creative fulcrum when you've got Bernardo Silva and Diogo Jota on there as well. It's sort of, Diogo Jota is a lot more direct with his, uh, with his running, but he's more like three players who are f- vaguely similar, trying to supply Cristiano Ronaldo, and I don't think it works as well as Renato Sanchez sort of bursting through the lines. You know, He's a good... Um, is a good antidote to a, a slightly immobile, immobile defensive pivot with Danilo and Cavalier. Of course, we saw Jao Moutinho. We could also see, alternatively, Ruben Neves in that uh, system as well. Kevin De Bruyne will probably play, at least on paper, right wing for Belgium in 3-4-3, but he'll likely drop into more of what we see as a three with Tielemans and then Donker in the midfield. So that, I think the midfield battle does need Renato Sanchez into it, and that's probably the reason why I think he starts over Bruno Fernandes. It's probably the match I'm most excited for as a neutral, of course, barring the obvious England versus Germany. And I think this probably has the quality to be a final, and the winner will play Italy Munich again, another match, which has the quality to be a final, really a potential final, but um, it's, it's a very tough quarter of the draw, and whoever makes it in through to the semi-finals probably deserves to make the final just off the basis of that and of course probably likely to play France or Spain in the semi-final as well which proves that this is probably the hardest half of the draw and from the hardest half of the draw to the kind half of the draw or rather kind quarter of the draw Netherlands versus Czech Republic at 5pm British summertime today Netherlands have hit the jackpot for me they've missed out on Portugal's the third place best place team with Slovakia's exit in uh, Group E as one of the worst group uh, third place teams which means Czech Republic not Portugal and of course they've hit the jackpot with the kind of half kind of quarter of the draw but as I say if the Dutch go through here I'd favour Denmark in um, what would be a quite close affair in that one I would like to see them Daniel Marlin Memphis double act against this Kind of leggy, kind of slow Czech defence. I'd love to see Marlon and Memphis just run, run them ragged. And it is a mesh of styles, a 3-5-2 for the Dutch against a 4-2-3-1 for the Czechs, which I'm kind of looking forward to. The biggest battle of the lot will be uh, Denzel Dumfries and Jakub Jankta. Jakub Jankta being the, the incisive inverted forward on that left wing. Meanwhile, Dumfries, we know, loves to uh, loves to attack that right flank, when in essence it could be Jankta versus... Uh, De Vrij or De Litt, whoever lines up in that right centre-back role, which will be the big battle because obviously Dumfries will be far up the pitch uh, for any uh, counter-attacks or any uh, attacks that Netherlands will have. Netherlands will be fine, I think, if their defensive line is retreated. As seen against North Macedonia, of course, a much-changed team, that one uh, there. But uh, I think the bar has noticed that they were far too gung-ho against Ukraine. They were a bit slightly deeper against Austria, slightly deeper again against Macedonia. And I think if they retain that defensive line and not just go walk about, I think Delitz added a lot to that as well, um, his return from injury. I think they'll be more than fine. 
And although they didn't show it against England, I think Czech Republic can be very dangerous going forward. They went toe-to-toe with Croatia, let's not forget, who looked to be up to speed now um, with their sort of system that will be, of course, we'll be previewing that um, tomorrow as well. And of course, the winner plays Denmark in Baku. So it is a bit of a travelling for Czech Republic and Netherlands here. Of course, it's less so for Denmark as they just had to move next door, really, didn't they? And maybe that will factor into it. But I think for me, you can only really look at Netherlands to go through to quarterfinal to meet Denmark, uh, where I predict that Denmark will make the semi-finals. Maybe that's a, a bit of bias for what is everyone's favourite second team now, really. <laughs> There's no getting around that. And Belgium and Portugal, I am declined to make a prediction because that is far too close with the midfield. It is too close. And uh, predictions, as we've seen, my team previews, my team preview predictions, my preview podcast before this, I've made an absolute arse of myself. So I'm not going to do that again, even though... I do it on a routine basis. Anyway, until tomorrow, where we'll be discussing, of course, Belgium versus Portugal, Netherlands versus Czech Republic, previewing France versus Switzerland, and previewing Croatia versus Spain. Until then, see they and Hupparange. Sports Social Podcast Network.